This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Yeah, it's tax time. That was a bit shocking to me when I realized what the date was and that we needed to start talking about this stuff. Holy moly, Mm -hmm. where's the year gone, Blair? Well, for some people, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but I don't know many of those people. So for a yeah, lot of no, folks, I... yeah, it's a, that yearly obligation. And yeah, I feel like I'm still waiting for 2020 to finish. And here we are, tax time 2021, but it comes every year, doesn't it? Yeah, whether we want it to or not. Um, and, you know, everybody's in a different position. They're waiting for a refund or they've got money to pay or whatever. Tax time is tax time. So can you start us off in this segment with some general do's, the things we want to do for getting tax returns done as smoothly as possible? I'm looking forward to this segment, Blair. Yeah, well, absolutely, because the idea of a stress-free tax time, dare I say it, a boring tax time, that's what we all aspire to. Um, And sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, knowing what you need to know and working within the rules is going to help you have a whole lot less stress than you might otherwise have. So starting with the dues, uh, a couple of first ones. So you got to know your deadlines. So know the filing and the paying deadlines and know that these might not be the same dates. So what you need to understand is for your 2020 tax returns, April 30th is your deadline to file your taxes and to pay your outstanding balance. Now, if you're self-employed or if your spouse or common-law partner is, for example, uh, their deadline to file taxes is June 15th. So it's quite a bit longer than April 30th, but what you owe still needs to be paid as of April 30th. So the government expects that you're going to estimate your tax liability. You're going to pay it by April 30th. And if you're high or low, if you paid too much, they'll give you a refund. If you paid too little, well, then they'll charge you the balance and perhaps a little bit of interest on top of that. But April 30th is very important and June 15th as well. I wanted to ask you, was, did, did uh, Canada Revenue Agency uh, change the dates last year? I have a memory that they did mm-hmm. because of the pandemic. Um, what do you think? Do you think that that could possibly happen again this year or is it pretty much in stone? Yeah, they they did change them last year. They gave a number of extra months. And what I expect this year is, you know, they're going to be more lenient on tax balances owing. Obviously, we've heard a lot about the CERB payments, CERB overpayments, you know, not charging interest or in some cases not requiring them to be repaid. So I think CRA is going to be a bit more flexible on tax debts, but I haven't heard anything about them being flexible on the deadlines as well. I think they're taking the view that, well, now it's been a year of operating like this. Um, You know, folks should be able to to meet their deadlines for, for good or bad whether we agree or not, I think that's where they're coming at. And that actually dives into my second point here on the do side, which is to stay home, avoid the delays and just do your taxes digitally. So I recall when I was younger doing my taxes at first, um, you know, you get the booklet from the government, you're filling everything in, handwritten, you're doing your own math. Um, You don't need to do that anymore. Uh, For most people who have a very straightforward tax return, you can file it online and most of the tax uh, programs that you'll use, they'll interfere face directly with CRA. Uh, So when you file online, it's going to cut down the time for your return to be processed, um, and it's going to result in you getting your refund more quickly than would otherwise be the case. 
Uh, it's also going to be more accurate. You know, there's no chance of you making some math errors or maybe, you know, writing a number that gets transposed differently when the CRA agent is entering it. Um, and then it's also, if you haven't signed up for direct deposit, recommend that you do that because it means that you might be able to get your refund in as little as eight business days. So, you know, we'll see around tax time, a bunch of tax preparing services are saying, you know, uh, file through us and we'll give you your instant refund and we'll hold back, you know, a, a fairly high percentage of it, sometimes 20 or 30% of it. You know, if, if it's just going to be eight days of difference between when you file your taxes and you get the money, you're going to be financially better off by not getting that instant refund uh, and just waiting the eight days to get 100% of your refund back when you do it yourself. Uh, if you're not comfortable filing your own tax return and you've got a relatively simple situation and, and pretty modest income, uh, if you visit Canada.ca, uh, you can check out the Community Volunteer Income Tax Program um, to get some to get some assistance. And if you have a really low income or a fixed income, uh, there's also a service called File My Return Service where CRA will just look at all the information that they have uh, and they'll be able to assist you in filing the return. So the important thing is to do it, to do it prior to April 30th. And we definitely recommend you explore the online options because it's faster, it's more accurate. Uh, and generally, it's pretty inexpensive for the most part. You can get a lot of software in the $20 to $30 range and some simple tax situations. The software providers sometimes even offer that for free. Cool. Now, uh, probably the next thing to pay attention to is to be organized. And I know that it's uh, over the years, I've gotten better, better organized. Uh, But if you can plan ahead and be organized, I bet that's a that's a big bonus for people. Yeah, that definitely helps. You know, the idea of investing um, before you need to, you know, being organized the entire year makes it so much easier than opening up that shoebox and combing through the receipts. You're feeling stressed and it's April 28th and you haven't started yet. Um, So if if you're able to stay organized the whole year, that's going to help a lot. And you need to understand, well, what's the sum total of all the tax slips I'm expecting? And, you know, even just a little checklist to say, well, have I gotten my RRSP contribution slips? Uh, If I received CERB, have I gotten that information? from the government? Do I have all my charitable donation receipts? Uh, You know, it's easy to forget those things unless you're going through methodically and just, you know, ticking off the boxes to see. Uh, If you did receive any COVID-19 emergency or recovery benefits from CRA, you should receive what's called a T4A slip as these are considered taxable income. Um, And if you've got online access to CRA, which is easier than you think to do, you can even log in uh, oftentimes using your existing bank. If you do online banking, they can validate your your identity that way. Uh, You can log into CRA to just get a sense of what tax slips have been uploaded already and check them against what you already have. Okay. What about the stuff that we shouldn't do? And I probably fall into this category as well. Well, yeah, and I hope not, but, you know, probably all of us, you know, procrastination is, is a bit of a, of a human trait here. So the thing that you don't yes. want to do uh, is to file or pay your balance owing late if you can all avoid it. So if you're getting money back, some people say, well, I'm not going to file on time because the government owes me money. Okay, well, that's fine. The government's not paying you interest on that money. So if you want to let them hold it for free, that's one thing. But you also need to understand if you don't file on time, it will impact directly the government benefits that you receive. So things like Canada Child Benefit, GST credits. If you don't file taxes, you generally aren't going to receive that money. So sometimes clients come in to me, they haven't filed taxes for several years. We help them get caught up. And lo and behold, they get thousands of dollars 
dollars because of Canada Child Benefit or GST credits that they should have been receiving all along, but they didn't get it because they didn't jump through the hoop of filing the taxes. Uh, if you do owe tax for 2020 and you file your return late, CRA is going to charge you a late filing penalty, and that's in addition to other interest and penalties that they will charge. So for 2020, the penalty is 5% of your balance owing as soon as it's late, and then 1% of the balance owing for each full month the return was filed after the April 30th deadline. Um, if you're a habitually late filer, so if CRA has charged you this penalty for your 2017, 18, or 19 returns, then the penalty rate can double. So it can be a maximum of 20 months of interest at 1% per month, which is relatively significant. Um, and CRA is going to charge and compound their interest monthly beginning May 1st uh, until the balance is paid in full. So being on time is really important. And if you've got a balance, realize, you know, the 5% off the top, uh, that's a penalty that you want to try to avoid if possible. And I want to throw in here, if, if Blair is kind of describing you a little bit and you're thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? I have no idea, is give them a call, Sands & Associates. This is their 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. Go to their website, sands-trustee.com, and get a start on it. And I know that Blair and his staff, they help people in this situation all the time, regardless of how uh, behind you are in paying your taxes. So, um Please don't hesitate to do that. Uh, do you do you want to add some more pieces in here about uh, don't avoid your balance by not yeah. filing? Or okay, good, oh, let's so go. Important. That one is so important, Elaine, because you know sometimes people think, okay, I know I owe the government money, I'm just not going to file. It's going to you know keep the the dogs at bay, so to speak. You know, if they don't know that I owe them money, uh, you know, how are they going to come after me? This is not an effective strategy at all. The longer your taxes go unfiled the more difficult it is for you to get caught up and the more you end up in CRA's, you know, so-called bad book, so to speak. Uh, having a debt only to CRA is not the worst thing you can do. You know, if you're um, straightforward with them and work with them, they will work with you. But not filing your taxes, um, CRA views that as you not res not uh, respecting your civic responsibility, not fulfilling your obligations as a member of society here in Canada. And eventually what CRA is going to do is they're going to take some pretty drastic steps to compel you to file your taxes, like freezing your bank account. So suddenly the day you need to pay your rent, you find you can't access any dollars in your account. That could be due to CRA. Uh, they can arbitrarily assess your tax return. So if you're self-employed, for example, and you think, well, how is CRA going to know what money I've made or not? Uh, they're not going to know all of your expenses, but they've got more power than you could imagine to get all of your bank records. And I've seen it happen where they go through and say, this person hasn't filed for two or three years. We're going to file for them, and we're going to say every dollar that hit their bank account is their revenue. We're not going to allow them fair deductions for expenses. And suddenly the person owes a massive amount to CRA that it's much more difficult to correct when CRA has already done this arbitrary assessment than it would have been if the person had actually filed the taxes. So not filing is not an effective strategy. It's one of the worst things you can do when you're dealing with CRA is just to not file the taxes. And I would think that you would be a great person to talk to and your staff about the steps I should take if, if this is at all describes me in any way. 
Absolutely. So I think folks need to understand, you know, tax debt is just like any other debt uh, when it comes to insolvency legislation in Canada, meaning that it can be restructured, um, it can be reduced through using a consumer proposal. So for most of the tax debts, um, you know, if you're able to offer in the range of 20 to 40 percent back on the debt as part of a proposal, Sierra is very much willing to look at that as long as it comes to a licensed insolvency trustee. And as long that is, as that is realistically what you can afford to repay. If you can afford to repay the tax debt, the trustee can help you by, you know, stopping the garnishee, working out the payment plan. But if you, can, if you can't afford to pay the debt in full, a trustee is the best person to help you try to compromise the debt, either with a proposal or if it's the case, it's just so much tax debt, you understand why it happened, there's nothing you can do, you filed all the returns correctly. Uh, if a bankruptcy is required, tax debt gets discharged or eliminated as part of a bankruptcy filing in Canada. So typically, you don't need to go to court. If it's more than two hundred thousand dollars you do need to go to court it's a generally a pretty quick hearing but they want to understand why but if your tax debt is less than two hundred thousand dollars uh that debt can be discharged as part of either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal there's just so much good information um and it's a complicated and again like we talked about earlier everybody's situation is so unique um and the and the best thing about Sands and Associates is they'll customize their approach for you to, to k- take in all the aspects of the things that you're dealing with and help you move forward. Check out their website. It's sands-trustee.com and it's filled with good questions and answers on all kinds of topics, including tax debt, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Again, the phone number is 1-800-661-3030. So I know that a lot of folks that come and see you guys at Sands & Associates, there's somebody else in the picture, like it's them and their partner, but they might be the one that's having the debt issues and not their partner. So this is a great segment about how responsible we are for each other's debts if we're in a relationship or in a marriage. So how, how much do we need to pay attention to that, Blair? Well, I think it's important really to have the knowledge because if you have the wrong understanding on this, you might think you're doing the right thing for the overall couple's financial health by just assuming everything is joint and, you know, we should take wealth from one partner to pay off the debts of the other. Um, And you might still want to do that knowing the facts, but for the most part, uh, people are quite surprised to to understand the rules here and then they can make some better informed financial decisions uh, that might mean, hey, one spouse should deal with their debt on their own, you know, with support of the other, that's fine, but the idea of transferring assets between spouses to pay debt, you know, it's something that you really don't have to do. And we're, we're going to talk to you a little bit about that today. So I just want to start off by just giving really simple and straightforward and clear that there is nothing that creates a joint liability for debt simply by marriage cohabitation, common law relationship, or anything like that. So very clearly, you are not responsible for paying the debts of your spouse or your partner simply by virtue of, again, marriage cohabitation, or even if one spouse passes on, there's nothing that transfers that liability to the other spouse. And that's completely opposite to what the conventional wisdom is. And I remember, you know, very young in my career, people telling me, oh, you know, you got to be careful when you get married. If you marry somebody, you marry their debt and vice versa. Uh, But it's just not the case. You marry somebody you marry that person, their debt stays their debt. You don't suddenly take it on as the other partner. Now, do you want to talk about the the situations where that isn't the case, where you, mm-hmm. you may get that spousal debt uh, attachment? 
Exactly. Yeah. So there are situations where couples do owe things together and, you know, it's quite common. So where that can happen. So number one is where you specifically take on a joint liability by co-signing or guaranteeing a debt. So what this normally takes the form of is that you co-sign, you've co-borrowed together on a new account. So maybe a new loan, a new lease or a co-credit card, um, or you've decided on an existing account that you want to make that a joint account now. So the statements used to come in one partner's name. Uh, one partner had the credit card, for example, and you sit down with the bank and you say, OK, um, we're now married. I'd like to get a supplementary card. I'd like the statements to be in both of our names. At that point, once you see both names on the statements, you know uh, it's a joint debt. It's something that um, is not just related to one partner. Uh, what also can trigger, and this is less common, but a debt can be deemed a family debt after the act of separation or divorce under BC's Family Law Act. So the idea of fairness being really important in the justice system, um, if you're in a relationship and let's say one spouse incurs a bunch of debt for the benefit of the relationship, uh, but it's only in that spouse's name and then their relationship dissolves, there's a divorce or if it's common law, you know, it, it breaks down irreconcilably. Um, there is a situation where the spouse who didn't incur the debt can be pursued by the spouse who did incur the debt saying, well, upon dissolution of this relationship, I I want that debt to be shared 50-50. But what's really important to know uh, is that the actual creditor who is owed that money, so let's say it's a big credit card uh, bill to one of the big banks out there, uh, they're not going to care too much if you've decided that, hey, your spouse is going to be responsible for half of that debt, and you might have a legal order saying that they're responsible for half of that debt. But to the creditor, to the bank, they're still going to pursue you for 100% of the debt, and they're going to depend on you going to your spouse to collect. So it gets pretty complicated when a relationship breaks down, and it is possible uh, for debts to be shared. But crystal clear, the debt that you bring into a relationship, there's nothing that makes that joint or shared between the two parties. Now, is there other situations where um, if your spouse isn't, any, uh, isn't able to meet their repayment obligations on assets you own together, could be at risk uh, for creditor for action against, from a creditor? Yeah, there, there's a small number of, of situations. I think it's good for people to know about this, and then they can kind of make some informed decisions on whether they want to have things like joint bank accounts, for example, because if you do have some jointly held assets, uh, they might not be fully protected against creditor collections. So a really common one uh, is where a creditor can, can exercise what's called the right of offset, which means if you've got a bunch, if you've got an account at a bank and then you owe that same bank some money, they're able to withdraw from that account if you start to miss payments to pay off the debt that you've missed a payment on. So, for example, this could be a joint bank account where the husband or wife has the credit card, the bank account is in both names, but they're all under the same bank's umbrella. So the bank has full rights typically to go into that joint account and take money to pay off that debt, even though it's only relating to one of the parties. So the way that you guard against this is, and this is basically one of the best pieces of advice we give quite often on the show here, is to never bank where you have a debt. It's fine to have a joint account as a couple, but you really make it too easy for the bank to come and seize your assets. If you're having your joint account where you also have all of your borrowing, when you start missing payments, that joint account can have funds seized from it. And there's no court proceeding that has to happen. It's just within the creditor agreements, the credit agreements that you've signed, they're typically allowed to do that.
Got it. Okay. So um, are there some things that you can take or like steps that you can take to address your debts independently from your spouse? Are there, is there ways that I can protect um, my spouse better? Yeah, there absolutely is, Elaine. So, you know, I think what people need to know is if they decide to file either a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, it's them doing it independently as an individual. It doesn't automatically sign um, their spouse or their common law partner or anything. It doesn't impact their credit one bit. Um, If the debts are all separate, there'll be no impact whatsoever. So someone can solve their financial situation. It's not that if a husband or wife goes bankrupt, the whole couple is bankrupt. It's not that one if one does a proposal, the whole couple does a proposal. They might choose to do things together and file a joint proposal, or perhaps if both of them have a whole lot of debt, they might need to, to file two bankruptcies, for example. But there's nothing that is created there just as a matter of, again, marriage cohabitation or anything like that. And what's interesting, too, is how much this knowledge can change people and how they they tend to make their decisions. I've got a couple quotes here from our annual um, consumer study where we ask people, you know, to write in some words of wisdom to others. You know, what are some things they wish they would have known? Uh, One of the quotes here says that since realizing that I was not legally responsible for death solely in my late husband's name, I would have paid my own debts first and been debt-free when he died. I would not have been happy to leave his debts unpaid, but I would have been under far less financial pressure. So Mm. this is someone who clearly they suffered an incredible loss of their partner of many years, I believe, in this case. Um, And then they felt that they were so responsible to pay that debt, and it ended up putting them in a very difficult financial situation, uh, which they didn't have to do. Uh, The second quote here from a client is, I did not understand that I could have declared bankruptcy and settled my debt separate to my spouse while married. I believe we both shared the debt and had to declare at the same time uh, if we were married. So again, in that situation, that's someone who thought the situation, the solution that I want, that's going to really negatively impact my spouse. And therefore, I'm not going to file a bankruptcy. So it's going to drag us both down where the facts are. It wouldn't have dragged both and both down. It would have been one person going through the bankruptcy, emerging stronger on the other side with no impact at all to the other spouse. And that and, and that's the same situation if, if they were to have done a consumer proposal as well, right? You're not automatically bringing your partner into that. That's exactly right. The only impact where there where there is an impact on a partner is if the debt is actually a joint debt. So in the, just the last you know half minute or so that we have here, in the event that the couple incurred a debt together, and then one you know both names are on the statements that come each month. If one person does a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, the impact is that the other person who's on that account is now a hundred percent responsible. So they've got to continue to make payments. They've got to pay the debt off over time. Um, but again, that's only if the debt was already joint. If the debt is not joint, there's nothing that happens to to make it so. And my strong recommendation is for couples to try to keep as much of your borrowing as separate as possible and keep your assets you know away from where you. Uh, away from where you have debt, and that's just going to help to protect you as a couple. I'm going to give you the website, sands-trustee.com, filled with great questions and answers uh, to take that next step. And the phone number is 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. So this is a great segment because it's all about Sands & Associates. 
Uh, who, who are they? Now, interesting fact, 1990 is when the company was founded. And literally since that day, you have helped thousands and thousands of BC residents get that fresh start when it comes to their finances and getting free of debt. And this segment is all about how professional debt management services can literally be life-changing to somebody who has been struggling to find a way forward and out of their debt. So Blair, do you want to start by telling us a bit more about Sands and Associates and what you and your team do? Yeah, with pleasure, Elaine. So um, in short, Sands and Associates, it's a firm of licensed insolvency trustees. And I know that that's a mouthful. We're going to tell you exactly what that term means. Uh, but what it means in sum is that we help with debt. So when people approach us, it's generally they're at a low point in their life. They've got more debt than they're able to handle. Um, and we sit down, we start by listening, we start by empathizing, uh, and then we provide real solutions uh, to help somebody get out of debt and have a better financial future. Uh, when you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee, you can rest assured that you're seeing the best possible debt professional to help you in your situation because only a licensed insolvency trustee is fully endorsed, uh, fully authorized and empowered by the federal government to aid you in accessing legal debt solutions, things like bankruptcies or proposals, they're only accessible if you work through a licensed insolvency trustee, and it's only those legal remedies that can actually help you get discharged from just about every debt under the sun, even including those owing to government. And when you're dealing with an LIT, you know that you're dealing with somebody that's been through a very rigorous qualification process. So they had to demonstrate that they've got knowledge, they've got experience and skills to be even granted that license for the, at the first place from the federal government. Uh, and then on an ongoing basis, an LIT has to adhere to a federal standard of practice and code of ethics, all really, really important things that every trustee takes closely to heart. And it's because we've got uh, those requirements, that's why the government gives us that power to give somebody protection from creditors. So even if you're being sued, you're worried your, aid, your assets are about to be taken or your wages seized, uh, only a licensed insolvency trustee can give you that protection. And then we're regularly reviewed, audited, evaluated by the federal government. So if you're sitting down with an LIT, you know it's somebody that's put in the work, that really understands the whole of the financial system when it, as it relates to debt and is empowered to help you take some action. So, you know, for myself as a licensed insolvency trustee, it's about the most satisfying job I could imagine having um, because everybody that I meet with, um, you know, if they've got a debt problem, I'm generally the person that can help them find the solution and just seeing people, you know, the, the, the transformation they can, they can undergo once they can finally have hope again, it's just so gratifying on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I bet it is. I, I actually do uh, bet that it is incredibly satisfying work. Um, and this, the next part of it too, um, I think, I think it would be great to talk about all the different kinds of solutions uh, that you can mm -hmm. give to people to assist them um, to either manage their debt or get out of their debts uh, completely. Yeah, so it's it's more broad than everybody comes in and, you know, we just slot them into one of two camps, which is either a bankruptcy or a proposal. It's a whole lot more broad than that. So, you know, with a lot of folks, it starts off by let's explore your rights and your remedies when it comes to debt. Let's look at each of your debt. Let's understand where it's actually payable, whether it's collectible. Is there a statute of limitations that's kicked in? We'll help you understand all of that and also help you understand what you can and can't do and what might happen if you're just unable to pay the debt. So, you know, taking no action is, is a choice of action, and we can tell you exactly what's going to happen. 
and what are the rights and remedies of all of the players, because quite often people are just hearing it from a collection agent, from a bank, from someone who's clearly got a vested interest uh, in just, you know, not giving a complete set of facts. Uh, what a trustee is going to do is help you assess all of your debt options and help you consider which one might best fit your situation. Uh, a trustee is not going to sit there and tell you, well, you must do this or you should do that or so on and so forth. They're going to give you all of the facts, help you understand your objectives, and then say, well, here's the considerations. Here's what you, what you might want to keep in mind. Um, and then you can make a really informed decision. Um, once you've decided on what you're going to do, if it is a formal remedy, well, then a trustee is going to start preventing the creditors from pursuing you or taking any other legal action, and then help you through either the bankruptcy or the consumer proposal process, uh, provide you with counseling along the way, and just really help you get that fresh financial start. And I think, too, it's important to just make a note that everybody's situation is a little bit different. Like, no one person is exactly the same as the next in terms of their, you know, situation in, in all areas, I would think, hey? Oh, absolutely true, Elaine. You know, behind every death situation, there's a person, there's a family, there's a story, there's a series of events that have happened, you know, often conspired against the person, you know, a perfect storm of things. Um, and, you know, it's just about everybody that I know, even in my personal life, you know, if you had to face a job loss, a marital breakdown, an illness, an illness of a spouse or a child, you know, a lot of folks could find themselves in a very difficult financial situation. So, you know, everything that we do, it starts with empathy. It starts with understanding that, you know, kindness, caring, recognizing the dignity of each person. Uh, you're not necessarily a bad person just because you ended up in a bad debt situation. So, we, you know, we want to help validate people that, you know, they do still have a whole lot of self-worth, even if the balance sheet is looking bad these days. Uh, and that's why, you know, we've been, we're so proud that we've been recognized as a Consumer Choice Award winner in BC for every year that that award has been given. We have won it as the licensed insolvency trustee firm of choice, and that's for 10 consecutive years now. And I, and I really like the idea that you, you talked about in terms of the empathy, because that's where you guys really, really shine. Because everybody's situation is different, um, you have no idea what their story is when they walk in the door, and you really work hard. And I would say you and everybody that I've met um, out of Sands & Associates, from the counselors to the accountants to the people who are, you know, to you who's signing papers and all that kind of stuff, um, the, your strength, I think, is the people. Oh, that's completely true, <clears throat> true, Elaine. We've got a really diverse team. Um, you know, we've got a number of licensed insolvency trustees, insolvency estate managers, which are you know essentially more of the day to day that you'll you'll see when you sit down uh, on your file on your file administration. But you know, you're going to meet a trustee definitely at multiple times throughout any process of working with us. And I'm so happy that much of our staff. You know, we've been around 30 years. We've got a lot of staff that have been with us almost since day one. A lot that have been with us 20 years. Um, you know, they've seen and heard a lot of different stories and they know how to relate to individuals again to help them get that hope back that dignity as they work towards the financial fresh start and if you want to take some action right now it's very easy to do and i'll just give you the phone number to get a hold of uh, sands and associates it's 1-800-661-3030 and uh, kind of get that team to embrace you and and help you figure out what your next steps are and that kind of leads me to the next question and i know it's important but i'd love you to talk about why it's so important for people to know about what insolvency trustees do 
You know, the reason it's so important, Elaine, is there's just so many people who face an overwhelming struggle with debt and they suffer for too long. You know, sometimes it's years. It's often an average of about two years where people know they're in a tough situation. It's often a situation where they're not the author of their own misfortune. They're just dealing with a bunch of circumstances that have have conspired against them, as I said, and they just don't know where to turn to for debt advice. So for anybody listening, you know, if it's not you that's in these situations, you know, that's great. But odds are there's someone in your family, someone in your extended uh, network of people that you know who are probably facing some dark times financially and might be suffering alone in silence, just not knowing that there are some solutions available for them. You know, this could be your loved ones. It could be your coworkers, uh, your neighbors or your friends. And we know that a debt problem can happen to anyone at virtually any time. Like, let's take a look at this pandemic. Who could have seen this coming? You know, even just 12 short months ago, this wasn't on anybody's radar screen. And now it's been the biggest economic disruption, perhaps the the country's ever seen. Uh, But there's often some triggers, uh, things like illness, injury, or health-related problems. Uh, You know, if someone has an issue that stops them from being able to earn their regular income, it's pretty difficult to maintain all of your obligations when suddenly your income is either cut off or reduced to just a disability benefit, for example. Um, Other folks, it's a matter of overextension of credit because the cost of living outpaced their income. So in the 10 plus years I've been a trustee in the province of BC and in Ontario before then, uh, I've seen the cost of rental accommodations and, of course, real estate just go through the roof. So for a lot of folks, if they're just getting a small increase or no increase every year, they can be relying on credit to fill the gap because the cost of living is just outpacing the growth uh, in their wages. What's also quite common is marital or relationship breakdown. So, uh, again, could be through no fault of either person. It's just, you know, they've got to suddenly uh, reestablish two households, and that can be very financially difficult, um, as well as perhaps some support going back and forth um, after the breakdown. And then finally, job challenges or job losses. So, uh, you know, it could be the fact that the job's been outsourced or lost somewhere, or again, during this pandemic, someone in the, in the service industry or, you know, pick an industry, the airline industry, for example, you know, great jobs, high paying jobs, and through no fault of the individual's own, uh, people are really finding it very tough. So if you're facing these circumstances and you have no idea where to turn, just knowing that an LIT can help you, that can just make a life or death difference. It's also interesting, you know, my time that I've spent with you over the last while, which is, I guess, been a while. It's been a while we've been doing the show together. Um, that Sands and Associates spends a lot of time and money, sort of gathering data and statistics, so that you really find out who your clients are and the sort of the situations that they come from. And I love this the this piece about your annual study about only five percent of people who eventually seek bankruptcy protection or consolidate. Uh, debt using a consumer proposal, ask for that help or seek that help right away. Yeah. Wasn't that just shocking, Elaine? So 95% of people who find themselves in trouble, they suffer. And it's just a matter of how long do they suffer. Again, two years is about the average, but only 5% of people reach out for help right away. And they're so happy when they do so because they've avoided that, you know, purgatory, that suffering for for quite some time. And the reason people wait for 38% of people in our last study, they thought their situation had no solution. 
So they just figured, oh, my gosh, it's a government debt. There's nothing I can do about that. I already know the answer. And they're just basing that on a false understanding. So anyone who listens to our show long term knows that there's just about no debt that a trustee can't help with. But for 38 percent of folks, they think there's no solution to their situation. And for about a third of people, 32 percent, they just didn't know where to seek help. So, you know, maybe they went to their banker and the banker said, well, I'd love to give you a consolidation loan, but I can't approve you. Uh, and then they didn't get referred anywhere else. So oftentimes they, they cope for blame, by blaming themselves. Um, oftentimes people have significant mental health and emotional impacts. They can alienate themselves for others from others. And there's some physical manifestations of stress as well. It's not healthy to be in fight or flight all the time. And you'd be amazed just how much someone's physical health and their mental health can improve once they've taken that step to deal with their debts. And I know over the time that we've been doing the show, Blair, you talk about uh, people not necessarily having to go into bankruptcy or to file a, a consumer proposal, but you help them figure out other ways of dealing with the debt. And that's where I want to close this. So if you want more information about how to take the next step, sans-trustee.com is the website, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Get that first free consultation as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. So credit ratings. And Blair, I know that so many people pay a great deal of attention to credit ratings. But there are things I've learned that you should and shouldn't worry about when it comes to your credit rating. I'm so glad that we're going to do this, uh, going to do this segment. Yeah, I'm thrilled about it too, Elaine. I think there's nobody that I meet with who doesn't ask the inevitable question, well, you know, what's it going to do to my credit rating if I restructure my debts? And, you know, it, it really was an eye-opener to me as a trustee when I started seeing people um, in that most of the people that I saw, and it's upwards of 70% by statistics, they actually have a great credit rating, uh, but then they file a bankruptcy or a proposal literally the next day, and you wonder how that can be and how it is is when you actually uncover what a credit rating measures and what it doesn't measure, you come to the conclusion it's actually a pretty terrible measure of your overall financial health. Um, the reason why we tend to grab onto it so much is there's so few other measures that you know people can clearly look at. Um, and I believe there's you know just a little bit of a of a societal fixation on having great credit. You know, even the word "all oh, your credit" to this this to this organization type of thing, having a good credit rating, well, why would you want a bad credit rating? Of course, if you're going to be rated, you want it to be as high as possible. But quite often, the things that drive a high credit rating are actually something that's not the best for you to be doing for your overall financial health. So let's start by breaking breaking it all down so that if you if you don't know what a credit score is and how it works or a credit report, this is where we'll start. So let's talk about what a credit score is and what a credit report has in it and how these mm -hmm. come to be, because it's not something that you create. Somebody else creates. Absolutely, Elaine. So what a credit score is, it's a numerical value and it ranges from a low of 300, which is the lowest it could be, uh, to a high of about 900. Now, are you ever going to know your exact credit score? No. Even those places that say, oh yeah, free credit score online, um, they're using their own set of rules and every lender uses their own set of rules to calculate their specific credit score. So what you see online will be a reasonable approximation, but you know, probably not down to the, to the third digit accurate type of thing. But a credit score uses the information in your credit report, which is also called your credit history, and it does a bunch of calculations to, to spit out, again, a three-digit numeric value from 300 to 900. 
if you've ever used any sort of credit, you're going to have a credit history, and your credit report is a summary of that history. It also includes some public information, you know, available via public records. So, uh, you know, where you've lived or where you've worked or if you've done a proposal or a bankruptcy in the past. Your credit report, and we'll talk to you how you get this because it is interesting. Everybody should be pulling their credit report at least once a year, in my view. It's going to have information about your debts, when you open the account, the balance. Do you make your payments on time or not? Do you go over your credit limit or how much of your limit do you utilize on a monthly basis? And it's generally updated, you know, usually monthly, every lender is going to report to the credit bureau. Now, not in every case does every lender report. Uh, Some don't report at all and some report quite infrequently, but quite often on a monthly basis, your credit history is getting updated. Um, And then when you open a new account or cancel an old account, uh, lenders also update the account, uh, sorry, the credit history at that point. Uh, Your score is far from permanent, so even checking your credit score from one day to the next uh, can be different, and definitely from a month to month, it can be quite different. What gains you points are favorable actions, so you make your payments on time, it shows you can manage your credit well, uh, and you lose points for actions that demonstrate you know, perhaps more risk to the, to the lender, like making a late payment or consistently going over your limit or using almost all of the limit that's available. Uh, each lender, you know, a credit score is just a, an input into them. So just because someone pulls a credit report, a credit score that's accessible, sorry, that's acceptable to one lender might be 750 and the other person might be 770. So uh, it's really different from lender to lender what their minimum standards are going to be for actually advancing you uh, some financing if they pull your credit report. Okay. I think what's really what's really important for people to know is just based on that number is it was never determined or never designed to be something that individuals really held on to and used as a barometer of their financial health. That's what it's become. But what it was originally designed to be was a measure of customer profitability for the bank. So they wanted to be able to segment which customers make them the most money. Um, and, you know, the customers that open a lot of accounts uh, that don't always pay the balance on time, but never miss making those minimum payments and pay them a lot of interest. They're often the most profitable customers, and they're the ones that are typically most rewarded by having a high credit score. Now, was that the biggest thing that surprised you the most when you really started to learn about uh, credit scores and credit history? Because it, sh- it still shocks me now when you talk about it. Yeah, it was understanding, you know, why it was originally drafted. And then as you as you look more into that, you start to realize, well, your credit score can be really high if you're only making minimum payments. But only making minimum payments is the worst thing you can be doing because even $6,000 of debt can put you on a 40-year payment plan to be debt-free. You know, great for the bank. They'll make a lot of interest. But is that good for you? Um, You know, definitely not. And if you're only able to make your minimum payments, that's typically a very big warning sign um, that you're financially at risk. Yeah. Because we talked about this before, if your credit card, I mean, your credit card statement now gives that total. If you only made the minimum payment, it would take you... 5,000 months to pay this off, right? Well, if that's true. And Elena, what's often what was really surprising to me is sometimes you think you're doing the right thing and, you know, ostensibly you are, but you're negatively rewarded by that, so to speak, with your credit rating taking a hit. So, for example, if you close an account, 
So let's say, you know, I, I remember getting this wisdom, this wisdom passed along to me, which unfortunately it's not wisdom, is, hey, if you're applying for a mortgage, the bank doesn't want to see you've got so many accounts that are open. So you should go through and close, you know, accounts that you don't need anymore because they've been around for years. You know, probably that's a good idea for your financial health. Why keep too many credit accounts open? But as soon as you do that, if you close an account, your credit score can take a pretty big hit because you're losing all the history that was associated with that account. It's like it didn't happen anymore once it's closed. So actually keeping the account open, that's better for your credit score. But why would you think that's you know a better thing for your overall financial health to keep active an account that you don't really need anymore? Yeah. Uh, what's, al- what's also interesting is people being denied credit because they don't have a whole lot of history. So if someone has, you know, a house, pick a place in BC, a house with no mortgage, got a lot of equity in there, and they don't need to borrow from the bank, that person might have, you know, a very, very low credit score or not enough information to rate, whereas they probably got a net worth that, you know, maybe it's over a million dollars with a house with no mortgage, whereas the person who has no assets and is overextended, you know, with three or four different credit cards that makes all the minimum payments, they actually look better from a credit rating point of view. So, you know, I know which situation I'd rather be in. It's the idea of assets with no debt, but the credit score system would say, well, having that debt with no assets, you actually look like a better risk to us. So the person who's way overextended might get the loan better than the person uh, who's got the assets but doesn't have the credit history because they don't need to borrow. Right. So what are the things that you could, that somebody can do to, to I don't know, help them in if they're in this situation? You know, two things. One is to understand that your credit score can change rapidly. So don't be married to the idea that you need a high credit score for every phase of your life. You need to have a good credit score, perhaps when you're buying a house or buying a car, but you can rebuild even from a bankruptcy to having a good enough credit score for a mortgage in as little as two years. So sometimes people think I'm going to hunker down for 10 years, pay off all my debt and preserve my credit rating. When they do that, they're not able to save money and actually get to that next step of acquiring an asset. So understand that it can change and sometimes it's better to take a short-term hit uh, for the long-term gain, but also understand how important accuracy is. So a lot of people, once they pull the credit report, they're so surprised to find there's accounts there, there's addresses there, there's employers that they don't have any idea how it ever got in there. And, you know, with 33 million Canadians and data points on each, it's possible for things to get jumbled up and it does happen. So I encourage everybody to pull their credit report at least once a year and you can do it online. Uh, If you do it online, there's typically a fee. Sometimes during the pandemic, they're offering, you know, free promotions. But uh, the better way I recommend is to do it by mail. So if you access sans-trustee.com, you just scroll down to the bottom and click on client resources. Uh, we've got credit request information forms. You send it away and you'll get your long form credit report. You can take a read of it, see all the information that lenders have to view and just make sure it's all accurate. So whether it's a good or bad measure, you don't want to be unfairly maligned or rewarded for something that's not accurate. And in the last 30 seconds here, I know, Blair, that you do this on a, on a regular basis and you are shocked at the misinformation that's on your credit report. Oh, almost every time I pull it, I can find something that's not accurate. It's pretty easy to correct. You just send an investigation request for them. They must correct it. But yeah, even my credit, I pull it so often. I'm surprised they still make mistakes, but they do. Yeah, really good. Important. It's important to to know that can happen to anybody. Uh, Sands-trustee.com is the website. The phone number 1-800-661-3030 for Sands and Associates. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.